morning. Uh, actually, just by celebrating a couple of people. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Quentin. Uh, I'm one of the pastors on staff, and normally my role is working with worship teams and leading worship on Sunday morning. Uh, but this morning, uh, we were led by Marshall and Katie, two of my great friends, and I just want to celebrate just some of the people that we, yeah, amen, come on. Uh, yeah, Marshall, uh, Marshall actually also is going to be, he is actively leading our middle school ministry in worship, uh, helping getting some rhythm started on Sunday mornings at 930 with them, and that's been going great. So Marshall, love you, dude. Thank you so much for the ways that you serve and lead. And then I don't know if Katie, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, give him another one. That's okay. I don't know if Katie's in here. I haven't seen her uh, in here yet, but oh, she's over there. You're right in the same spot. Hi. But Katie actually, uh, who is singing up here, uh, she's going to be interning with us this summer as our worship intern. So you'll see a lot more of her. So if you see her in the hallway or around the office or anything, be sure to give her a high five and make her feel welcome for the summer. She gets to experience what it's like as a college student, what we all enjoy in the summers, as Sean was talking about, with no weights at restaurants. It's great. So 10 years ago, uh, in February of 2013, I was in the same boat as many college students were this week, uh, where uh, it was my senior year at IU. I was uh, wondering what in the world am I going to do to make good on this promise I made to Renee's parents to provide for her and take care of her. We were engaged at the time, and I didn't know in three months when I graduated what was next. And it was a rainy Friday morning, and on Fridays that semester, in between uh, my two classes on Friday, I would meet up with some former roommates of mine from CSF, and we would meet at the Starbucks at the Student Union, and we'd just have coffee and catch up and chat in between classes. This particular Friday morning, Tim Thompson called me, uh, which if you don't know, Tim was my predecessor in this role, uh, and he's now at our Bedford campus. He called me, and he said, hey, what are you doing this weekend? Which, let me give you some free advice right now. If anybody ever calls you and says, last minute, says, hey, what are you doing this weekend? Always ask first, why are you asking? Very important. So I did. So I said, why? What's up? He said, well, I'm going to this retreat at Camp Ileana this weekend. I'm leading worship. And I double booked myself on Saturday. So could you come down tonight and help me and then cover for me tomorrow? Which if you know Tim at all, that is totally in character for him. So I said yes. And I went to my last class, rushed home, threw some clothes in a bag, and then drove the hour and a half down to Camp Ileana and spent the weekend there. And while I was there, I met a guy named Kevin Brimner, who was speaking that weekend at this retreat. And Kevin was a pastor at a church in Newburgh, Indiana, Evansville area, and he was looking for a full-time worship pastor. And I did not ex go expecting to find a job, but the spirit just really like pressed down upon me to like pray and pursue this opportunity. And so two months later, after a lot of conversation and prayer and travels back and forth, I said yes to that role at Evansville. And then a month after that, 10 years ago today, actually, first Sunday of May, early afternoon, I stood down in the chapel at Sherwood Oaks and was surrounded by family, friends, Tim Thompson, Tom Ellsworth, and so many of our elders who then were still, are still serving as elders here today. I was formally ordained into ministry uh, by this church that has shaped so much of, of who I am as a person. Uh, Now, if you had told me 10 years ago that on my 10-year anniversary, I would be standing up here preaching in front of that very same church, I'd have told you you're nuts. Uh, but God has a funny sense of humor, so here I am. So you see, that phone call on that Friday, mo that Friday morning that Tim made really changed everything for me. Saying yes changed everything. Those prayers and those affirmations in the chapel 10 years ago changed everything for me. And that's all possible because 2,000 years ago, this rabbi from Nazareth changed everything for everyone, everywhere. 
So if you've missed the last few weeks or you're just joining us for the first time, we're closing off this series called This Changes Everything. We've been in here for five weeks looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, which is this letter that Paul wrote to this baby church in Corinth all about how to live in light of the resurrection of Jesus, which is the pinnacle moment of our faith. And when you think about it, it's really a pinnacle moment of all of human history because even today, whether or not you claim Jesus as Lord, you live by that principle because our entire calendar is oriented around the life of Jesus. Think about that for a moment. Let that sink in. So this week, we're going to cover a lot of ground in this book, but we're going to kind of hit the main points in, these, in this section uh, that Paul was trying to convey. And we're going to kind of stay out of the weeds here. We've got four chapters, chapters 11 through 14. So it's going to be a sprint through there. I encourage you after this morning, go back, reread those four chapters. There's a lot of good in there, but way more than we can cover in our time together right now. So just to kind of catch up quickly where we've been uh, in the last five weeks. We started off on Easter, actually at the end of the book in chapter 15, talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Then we moved into this section where Paul kind of addresses some divisions that had arisen in the church. Uh, Then we move into the section where he's addressing distortions around sex and the holiness that we view our bodies with. And then last week, Sean talked about uh, laying down our rights in order to love others well which really this week is kind of part two to that because that word love is kind of the core of today's message because really you could change the title of the series to love changes everything because it does. It, <laughs> amen, amen, I love it. Don't, don't hold that back. Uh, it shapes people, it shapes nations, schools, governments, cities, neighborhoods, career paths, all of it. And 2,000 years ago, the kind of love that we're talking about today was still a very new concept. Now, the Hebrews had been given commands to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself, but Jesus, the night before he was crucified, he issued what he called a new command, and it was all around love. So we're going to look real quickly at John 13, 34. Jesus says this to his disciples in that room. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. We read that again. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Andy Stanley, a pastor in Atlanta, has this to say about that statement. He says, this new brand of love was extraordinarily personal for the men seated around that table. When we read, love as I have loved you, we think of the cross, but they didn't. They thought back over the previous three years. Each man in that room could remember a moment when Jesus had loved them particularly well. See, for for the disciples and for the people following Jesus in that time, love moved from this kind of ethereal, abstract, like love God by following these religious laws and like, you know, generally like be kind to your neighbor and do good things. It moved from there to this really tangible and practical like, hey, Matthew, remember when I loved you when you did this thing? Or hey, Peter, remember when you said this, but I still chose to love you, love people like that. It became personal. It became real. And Jesus says the result of this new kind of love, in verse 35, he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, how many people in your life have honestly come up to you and said, hey, like, I saw how you treated that person or I saw, heard what you said to that guy. Like, you must follow Jesus, you know, and I'm, it's a bigger church, and like we've, we, a lot of us in here have been following Jesus faithfully for a lot of years. And so I'm sure that has happened 
in this church. Like people have noticed the way that we are living. But I think if we were to really get honest with ourselves, the answer to that question of how often does it happen is probably way less than it should be or that we desire for it to be. And why is that? I believe a big part of the reason the world can't see our love for others is that just like the church in Corinth and so many that have come since then, we still struggle at times to love each other. I think Paul understood this and says, we have to learn how to love one another in the church so that we can love the other in life. I'm gonna say that again because this is kind of like the summary takeaway like right here, right now. If you miss everything else, get this. We have to learn how to love one another in the church so that we can love the other in life. You see, the other is everybody else that, you know, we come into contact with that doesn't claim a church home, that doesn't share our beliefs. Like, those are the other for the sake of today's conversation. But if we can't learn to love one another, the people that we share the most core beliefs in, the people that we're supposed to have the most important things in common with, how in the world can we expect to love those who view the world so radically differently than us that they live completely differently? It has to start with our love for one another. Amen. So let's, let's dig into this text. So for our purposes, we're going to start about halfway through chapter 11 and kind of hit all the different main topics that Paul addresses here. Now, this whole section of text is geared specifically at worship gatherings, at times when the church in Corinth would get together and they would worship, they would you know, share in a time of teaching, they would share in communion, all these different things, they would serve together. That's kind of the context that Paul is writing towards and addressing several different things within here. So starting right halfway through chapter 11, Paul actually dives into their time of communion as having become this big point of contention and division. Now, for the early church, their communion didn't come in little prepackaged cups and wasn't this little cracker and juice. Communion meant mealtime, like steak, potatoes, some roast veggies, like we're having a good time, some wine, it's gonna be a good meal together. Now what would happen is that people would show up and they would come and they would bring the food to share. That was part of the culture. It's like you would bring the food, you're gonna share this with the church. But the rich and the wealthier typically had not only more money, but also more free time. And so they would come early, they'd bring their food, they'd get together, and it kind of became this clickish thing. And they would just start gorging themselves on these meals and this drink. And then over here, you've got these people that are left out and separate who, you know, the poor working class, they were coming later. And by the time they got there, there wasn't any food left. So listen to what Paul says in verse 20. He says, so then when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry while another person gets drunk. Drunkenness and starvation aren't exactly two words you would expect to hear descriptive of a church event or a church gathering, right? So there's all that. Now in, Paul, in chapter 12, Paul begins to talk about various spiritual gifts that are given to the church, things such as wisdom and prophecy and speaking in tongues and healings that, you know, kind of some strange language to us today, but uh, there and elsewhere in his letters, Paul talks about things like generosity, just teaching, serving, leadership, giving, uh, all traits uh, that he, God has wired his church to cover in all the different people. But what was happening in Corinth and in a lot of the churches at that time is people were viewing certain giftings, certain gifts as being more important than others. Like they were, they were creating these like false skills of like this gift is more valuable than this to the church. So sorry, you people who are wired this way don't really matter. Like worship leading is more important than preaching. So sorry, Sean, you don't really matter. Like, you know, that, that's not, I don't live by that, I promise. Uh, but like that's, that's what was happening. It was all creating all these divisions around the different gifts that God has given us. 
And so Paul spends time uplifting each of the different gifts, each of the different ways that people are wired and all the diversity that's in the church. And Paul says this in verse 24 of chapter 12. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Soapbox moment, <laughs> soapbox moment here right now. Um, this right here, I think, is one of the key reasons that the church today has lost a lot of influence in the culture is because, see, we're, we're so often really good at celebrating people, celebrating each other, when people look like us, talk like us, think like us, act like us, do things the same way that we do, you know, generally, like, churches start to become these, like, kind of uniform-looking things where everybody does the same thing, and then, like, it becomes this, like, mind-racking thing when somebody changes something or somebody does something different. They're like, wait, we don't, you know, we don't do that. You know, like, I imagine for our 8 o'clock service this morning, we simply flipped communion and offering where they take place in the service like at the same time but we just said hey how about we do communion first this time and I'm sure for some people in that room it was like whoa that's a big deal like and even today like passing those offering bags today I'm sure some of you were like whoa like hold up you want me to do what but see like just because somebody does something differently or thinks differently like that's not a bad thing but like we struggle at times to do that because we like uniformity but there's no passage in the bible that says Christians are all supposed to look and act and talk and quack the same. Like that's not that's not scripture. You won't find that. And so that's really what Paul is getting at here is that you know we like uniformity but we struggle at celebrating diversity. We struggle at celebrating the ways that we're wired. In theory, being around people that look like you and talk like you sounds nice, but after a while, it's going to get boring, and it's going to end up in this short-lived happiness that results in this like kind of monochromatic you know, life that is kind of separated from this technicolor creation that God has made in his people and in his world. And so we need to celebrate and learn to celebrate the diversity and the beauty that comes from that in the church, not like hinder it and try to get everybody to like fall in line right here. Okay, soapbox over, moving on. Uh, chapter 13, skip over that for a second. We're gonna come back to that. We're gonna look at chapter 14 right now. So this whole chapter deals with uh, order of worship, which our fancy word for that uh, that we use sometimes today is called liturgy. Uh, and uh, Paul talks about prophecy and tongues and these other elements that were going on in the church at that time and how it's, it's better to prophesy than it is to speak in tongues. Now for us today, like prophecy would equate a lot to like teaching times, sermons, devotionals, things like that, like stuff that like was instructive to people or like bringing a word. And then tongues, if you've ever been in a church that practices the gift of tongues, like, and you're not used to that, it can be a little strange. Like it could be like, oh, okay, how do, we, how do we engage with this? And Paul says it's good to speak in tongues it's showing that you're having an intense spiritual moment, but that doesn't help anybody else. And so between those things and just all these agendas and other elements that people and the leaders there were bringing into the services, the services were becoming clutter and hard to follow. And this, this was making it hard for like the newer believers in the room or like visitors or people coming for the first time. They were like, I don't know what's going on. Uh, so Paul says this at kind of the middle of that section in verse 26. He says, what shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. I think that, that phrase right there, that kind of summarizes all of what Paul was just saying. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. 
See, the purpose of the gatherings was to encourage our faith and our practice in following after Jesus, not to make it more complicated. And then Paul goes on in these next few verses to give some specific instructions to that specific time and place and context of church. And then he closes out that section in verse 33 with these words. For God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. I love that. God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. The ESV translation says it this way. God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. And see, that's really where the title for this week's message comes from, from chaos to order. It could easily be confusion to peace or disorder to peace as well. That language, chaos to order, has origins all the way back in Genesis, the beginning of creation, the story the Hebrews would have grown up hearing about how the spirit of God hovered over the waters and brought order to the chaos that existed at that time. And that is what the Holy Spirit is doing in his church today to bring order to the chaos that exists in the world. And these gatherings are meant to reflect that work. They're meant to be these flag in the ground moments that center us on God's presence, on his word, his kingdom, and his mission. And then that also works in our own lives to bring order into our own hearts. Now, if, if they're not doing that, if churches aren't doing that, then one of two things is up. Either the church is, as Paul's talking about, the church is doing something that's not helpful or is being a hindrance to that, or we personally, when we come in, there's something in our own hearts that's not aligned right and not ready for the spirit to move, and so we are creating that hindrance as people when we come. And oftentimes, it's both. You know, churches aren't perfect. You know, we as pastors aren't perfect. We're people too. We make mistakes. Things don't always go the way we planned. You know, I've been leading worship for, uh, I don't know, 18 years, 20 years, something like that. Uh, and there have been plenty of sets uh, where you, I've walked off stage and gone, I hope people have short-term memory loss because that was just bad. We're just gonna move on. Like it just, things like that happen. Or these ideas that you have that just, they don't quite land the same or songs you sing that just don't catch on. It just, it happens. But I wanna, I wanna take a play out of Sean's book for a second. He's kind of, in his sermons, he's, he, every once in a while, he'll talk about these different uh, elements of just kind of planning church and running church, kind of that peel back the curtain, let you know what go, goes on here during the week. And so I wanna talk about one of those elements. And I wanna actually talk about lights, which we don't talk about our lights very often, but if you've been coming at all, or even if you're here today, like we, we have a lot of lights, like we got a lot of colors going on up here and you know, just lights up, it's kind of like a little theater set up here. So I just kind of wanna talk about the why in that, and maybe you've come from a you know smaller background where that you just had like one light in the room and you turned it on and that was how it went. That's fine. Um, but why do we use this? You know, we we use these tools to kind of accent the space and add some creativity. And just like any other form of art, whether it's architecture of these ancient cathedrals, you know, covered with these beautiful murals and intricate uh, designs, or whether it's you know beautiful paintings that have been memorialized for years, or poetry books, reading, music, any of it, all these art forms, it's worship manifested in some form of medium that reflects the beauty and the creativity of God. In short, God is creative and he's wired us to reflect that creativity. And there are people that really do a great job painting some beautiful canvases with a lighting setup. And I get that it's not everybody's cup of tea and some of you would prefer the one light setup where we just turn it on and turn it off and that's it. And that's, that's okay, again, Beauty and diversity, that's what we're here for. I don't expect everybody to like everything that we do. That's not the point. 
But we do have things as leaders that we do to make it so that these are not a hindrance. Uh, you know, when people come in or like these new elements aren't always going to be a distraction. So we have certain guidelines that we go by, things like, you know, make sure like the house lights are at like 25% during these moments where people are getting up and moving. Uh, make sure, you know, we've got lights that, you know, move and can move to different positions uh, and where they're shining. So we, you know, we make sure, hey, don't, don't rest the moving lights on the crowd. We don't want to, you know, put lights in anybody's eyes and don't run the blinders at 100%. Yes, we have lights that are called blinders. And I have a funny story about those, but in order to understand that story, I need you to experience what they actually do. So uh, Joel, if you could, could just show us. Like, so if you, if, oh yeah, just go ahead, stare at them really long, it's great. Okay, that's good. Yeah, thank you, thanks Joel. Joel's running lights today, he does a great job. Uh, yeah, give it up for Joel, give it up for production team. Um, so you know, we have rules that, you know, we shouldn't run them like that and just like make everybody go, gosh, I got a suntan and I'm blind all in the same moment. So when I first got into ministry and I started at this church in Newburgh, they didn't have, you know, all this, uh, you know, we had some great lights on the front, but we didn't really have all the color stuff. And uh, we had a, another pastor there, a tech pastor who he and I worked together and we wanted, we had some people who were interested in that kind of creative design. So we're like, how can we make some of this happen? How can we work within our budget and with what we have? So we started looking at inventory and we found these like I, they were blinders. I didn't know that's what they were called at the time. But they were pretty big, uh, old school lights. And we just kind of, for one uh, prayer service, we set them on the back of the stage and they were kind of angled up. So they weren't like super in the way. But I didn't know how light programming worked at that time. I wasn't really an expert in that field. And so I offered, I said, I'll just, I'll set it up. I'll program it. That way it wouldn't be a big deal on on him, and so for me, I, we had this great moment in the service planned where it was gonna be like this real soft acoustic moment, the band was gonna build, it was gonna be like the first time the band came in, we're like, we're gonna have the lights mirror what the band's doing, and it's gonna be this great moment, everybody's kinda come to Jesus, it's, it's, it's great. And, but I didn't know that you could do things like set like, hey, I'm only gonna run these lights at like 20% intensity, or like 50%, so I just went off to on, which equals 100%. So instead of everybody coming to Jesus, they all came to their computers to write me an email that following Monday morning, which was well-deserved. So <laughs> I say that to say that while ideas and, and things like that don't always go the way we planned, pastors really do take seriously Paul's call to build up within the church. And we do our best to steward the times that we have together towards greater purposes. And for our church, for here at Sherwood Oaks, our worship arts team, we've got kind of two phrases that we live by as our, as our guiding vision for our gatherings. And one is we wanna create transformational spaces and then we wanna create clear pathways for people to respond to the gospel. And the transformational spaces happen when people come into encounter with Jesus and those pathways are there because we don't wanna be a hindrance when the spirit of God moves in people's lives. Like we wanna be ready for what God's gonna do and be expected. And so we want some clear ways for people to respond and to move. And that's just, that's loving language. That's the kind of language that loves people well because we are prepared for people to come and meet Jesus. And that kind of love not only reorders our gatherings, but it reorders our hearts. And that's been at work in this church specifically long before I've been on staff. And I just wanna share, you know, because it, be, it can be easy to be critical you know, as Paul's writing some critical things in here, but I just wanna celebrate some ways I've seen that love manifested personally in my own life. You know, I've seen that love here in this church in a group of pastors and elders who gave their time to invest in this young, scrappy college student uh, when I came to Sherwood for the first time 14 years ago as a freshman at IU. I've seen that love in, in Tim who not only allowed me to intern, but also opened up his home to me to live with him for that summer because I needed housing. Do not call him and ask him how, what kind of roommate I was. I will deny it. 
I've seen that love in guys like Kevin Brimner, who gave this young, naive 22-year-old who knew nothing about lights and how to introduce them well to a service. Uh, I'm grateful that he gave me a shot in ministry. I've seen that love in so many who prayerfully, in this church even, who prayerfully and financially supported Renee and I when we went and moved to Portland to plant a church for two years uh, and help get that started. And I've seen that love here in leaders, uh, actually like Matt Limbrick, who uh, when I got hired four years ago, we were coming off of the heels of a tough church planting season for Renee and I, and his words to me were, hey, I just need you to lead worship. I got your back in everything else. Just lead worship. And that was so comforting. Thank you. And now he's overseeing our students and doing a great job with it. And so as we look at all that Paul has said in this section, as we kind of put a bow on this, and really this, this whole letter to Corinth, I think we can sum it up in this question. This is what Paul wants us to ask. What does love require? What does love require? You see, this question really does change the whole way that we approach any situation, any moment in life. It should cause us to stop and rethink our actions or our words. What does love require? And right in the middle of this section of text that we've been looking over, chapter 13, Paul penned some of the most word, world-changing words. And uh, this was the new command of Jesus that he gave to his disciples. This was kind of flat, Paul's words for that fleshed out for this new church in Corinth. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read chapter 13 if, in its entirety. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul just like dismantled his whole like thesis that he went on, his whole run in here. Like if, if you don't have love, none of what I just said matters. And he goes on. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talk, talked like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these th three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. See, this isn't just, amen for Paul. This isn't just catchy prose to read at a wedding. This isn't even like geared towards weddings. Like Paul wasn't writing this about romantic love or married couples. Yes, it applies, but he was writing it to the church. This was Jesus' strategy for rewriting human history and bringing order to the chaos that existed. It was love one another. That's it? That's all we gotta do? Then why 2,000 years later haven't we seen every knee bow and every tongue confess like Paul said? If that's all it takes, why are we still here? Could it be that maybe we haven't got it fully figured out yet? That we still struggle at times to love one another? 
Maybe that's why there's still so much chaos in the world. You see, if the church is supposed to be this bridge between the, the hope of the resurrection and the future kingdom and the present reality of the brokenness that we live in, the problem isn't with Jesus. The problem isn't with the hope. The problem's with the bridge. And while we have done so much good as a big C church in this world, there is still work to be done. Love one another as I have loved you. We can't love the other well if we can't love one another well. The message and the hope of the resurrection can't work through us if it hasn't worked in us first. And love for our fellow believer, regardless of preferences, differences, context, is a great indicator of the resurrection at work in our lives, followed closely by our love for the other. And Jesus promised that after he ascended, the Holy Spirit would come and live inside his people and empower his church to carry out that mission. Uh, The very presence of God would take residence in us, in our worship, in our bodies, and work through us to finish that work of order in the chaos. And we're gonna talk more about the Holy Spirit for these next three weeks. We're starting next week a series on the Holy Spirit. Make plans to join us here right now as we talk about that helper that is present right now. So to close out today, I just want to take a moment. Uh, we're going to put a passage of that First Corinthians 13 back up on the screen. And I just want to take a moment, just kind of reflect on these words from Paul for, for just a moment. And as I've kind of been reflecting uh, this past week on these first 10 years in ministry. I don't know that Paul wrote this this way with this in mind, but the beginning and the end of this passage struck me. Love is patient and it always perseveres. I just kind of book ending this whole section with this idea of patience and perseverance. I feel like that sums up so much of our journey of learning to love one another. It's patience and perseverance. And I'm grateful that in my time, I mean, I've grown up in the church, so I've been around the church for 32 years. Uh, you know, like, and in that time, I've seen some really great things, the highest of highs in the church. And I've seen people come together in the name of Jesus to do some really awesome, powerful things. But I've also seen some of the worst, if I'm being honest, and some things that just the church in general frustrate me. Some things that have been really hard to love people through, to love this, this body of Christ well, because man, we just didn't respond well in this circumstance. We didn't do this thing right as a people of God. And it is easy to harbor bitterness, but I read these words of Paul and realize that like, man, if, if Jesus loved me like that, I need to learn to love the church in that same way. And so I'm grateful to be at a place 10 years into ministry, looking at the next 30, 40, whatever God has for me here, and to say, I'm all in. And I'm challenging all of us to be all in with the church, to love each other well. So I ask again, what does love require of you? I see so much potential for the church. I see so much potential for this church. So let's continue to learn that love that Jesus commanded. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples. By this, the other will come to be part of the one another, and that changes everything. So Jesus, we are so grateful for these words that Paul has given us just to to live by and to put into practice the way of love 
And Lord, it's not easy, so give us the patience and the perseverance to press on, to celebrate the good, to be honest about the not so good, and to learn from it and to grow, but in everything, God, to love each other well, just as Christ has loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can watch all of our video content, both current and past, on our YouTube channel? Visit youtube.com slash Sherwood Oaks to watch messages, series, and complete worship services.